Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, listeners, to your next Dracula chapter. So, previously, we learned how screwed Mr. Harker really is in Dracula's domain, and how his life is really in the clawed hand of the vampire that is Dracula. Now, this chapter takes a pause on his writings to look into the life of Mina, his love, other characters in his life, and perhaps, I suspect, the connections that will help Mina reach out and find out what happened to Jonathan Harker. There is also a mention of Renfield in this chapter, so I can't wait to dig further into Dracula to find out what that entails. Mates, I won't keep you waiting for your next part. Turn up the sound, and let's enjoy the next chapter of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Chapter 5 Letters from Miss Mina Murray to Miss Lucy, Western Era, 9th of May My dearest Lucy, forgive my long delay in writing, but I've been simply overwhelmed with work. The life of an assistant schoolmistress is sometimes tiring. I am longing to be with you and by the sea, where we can talk together freely and build our castles in the air. I have been working very hard lately, because I want to keep up with Jonathan's studies, and I have been practicing shorthand very astutely. When we are married, I shall be able to be useful to Jonathan, and if I can stenograph well enough, I can take down what he wants to say in this way and write it out for him on the typewriter, at which also practicing very hard. He and I sometimes write letters in shorthand, and he is keeping a stenographic journal of his travels abroad. When I am with you, I shall keep a diary in the same way. I don't mean one of those two-page-to-the-week-with-Sunday-squeeze-in-a-corner diaries, but a sort of journal which I can write in whenever I feel inclined. I do not suppose there will be much of interest to other people, but it is not intended for them. I may show it to Jonathan someday, if there is in anything worth sharing, but it is really an exercise book. I shall try to do what I see lady journalists do, interviewing and writing descriptions and trying to remember conversations. I am told that, with a little practice, one can remember all that goes on or that one hears said during a day. However, we shall see. I will tell you of my little plans when we meet. I have just had a few hurried lines from Jonathan from Transylvania. He is well and will be returning in about a week. I am longing to hear all his news. It must be so nice to see strange countries. I wonder if we, I mean Jonathan and I, shall ever see them together. There it is, the ten o'clock bell ringing. Goodbye. Your loving Mina. Tell me all the news when you write. You have not told me anything for a long time. I hear rumours, and especially of a tall, handsome, curly-haired man. Letter Lucy Westenra to Mina Murray, 17 Chatham Street, Wednesday. My dearest Mina, I must say you tax me very unfairly with being a bad correspondent. I wrote to you twice since we parted, and your last letter was only your second. Besides, I have nothing to tell you. 
There is really nothing to interest you. Town is very pleasant just now, and we go a good deal to picture galleries and for walks and rides in the park. As to the tall, curly-haired man, I suppose it was the one who was with me at the last pop. Someone has evidently been telling tales. That was Mr. Holmwood. He often comes to see us, and he and Mama get on very well together. They have so many things to talk about in common. We met some time ago a man that would just do for you. If you were not already engaged to Jonathan. He is an excellent party. Being handsome, well off, and of good birth. He is a doctor and really clever. Just fancy. He is only nine and twenty. And he has an immense lunatic asylum all under his own care. Mr. Holmwood introduced him to me. And he called here to see us and often comes now. I think he is one of the most resolute men I ever saw, and yet the most calm. He seems absolutely imperturbable. I can fancy what a wonderful power he must have over his patients. He has a curious habit of looking one straight in the face, as if trying to read one's thoughts. He tries this on very much with me, but I flatter myself he has got a tough nut to crack. I know that from my glass. Do you ever try to read your own face? I do. And I can tell you it is not a bad study, and gives you more trouble than you can well fancy if you have ever tried it. He says that I afford him a curious psychological study, and I humbly think I do. I do not, as you know, take sufficient interest in dress to be able to describe the new fashions Dress is a bore. That is slang again, but never mind. Arthur says that every day. There. It is all out. Mina, we have told all our secrets to each other since we were children. We have slept together and eaten together, and laughed and cried together. And now, though I have spoken, I would like to speak more. Oh, Mina, couldn't you guess? I love him. I am blushing as I write, for although I think he loves me, he has not told me so in words. But oh, Mina, I love him, I love him, I love him! <sighs> there, that does me good. I wish I were you, dear, sitting by the fire undressing as we used to sit, and I would try to tell you what I feel. I do not know how I am writing this even to you. I am afraid to stop, or I should tear up the letter, and I don't want to stop, for I do so want to tell you all. Let me hear from you at once, and tell me all that you think about it. Mina, I must stop. Good night. Bless me in your prayers, and Mina, pray for my happiness. Lucy. P.S. I need not tell you this is a secret. Good night again. L. Letter Lucy Westenra to Mina Murray, 24 May. My dearest Mina, thanks and thanks and thanks again for your sweet letter. It was so nice to be able to tell you and to have your sympathy. My dear, it never rains but it pours. How true the old proverbs are. Here am I who shall be 20 in September, and yet I never had a proposal till today. Not a real proposal, and today I have had three, 
Just fancy, three proposals in one day. Isn't it awful? I feel sorry, really and truly sorry, for two of the poor fellows. Oh, Mina, I am so happy that I don't know what to do with myself. And three proposals. But for goodness sake, don't tell any of the girls, or they would be getting all sorts of extravagant ideas and imagining themselves injured and slighted if in their very first day at home, they did not get six at least. Some girls are so vain. You and I, Mina, dear, who are engaged and are going to settle down soon, soberly into an old married woman, can despise vanity. Well, I must tell you all but the three. But you must keep it secret, dear, from everyone, except, of course, Jonathan. You will tell him, because I would, if I were in your place, certainly tell Arthur. A woman ought to tell her husband everything. Don't you think so, dear? And I must be fair. Men like women, certainly their wives, should be quite as fair as they are. And women, I am afraid, are not always quite as fair as they should be. Well, my dear, number one came just before lunch. I told you of him. Dr. John Seward, the lunatic asylum man with the strong jaw and the good forehead. He was very cool outwardly, but was nervous all the same. He had evidently been schooling himself as to all sorts of little things and remembered them, but he almost managed to sit down on his silk hat, which men don't generally do when they are cool. And then when he wanted to appear at ease, he kept playing with a lancet in a way that made me nearly scream. He spoke to me, Mina, very straightforwardly. He told me how dear I was to him, though he had known me so little, and what his life would be with me to help and cheer him. He was going to tell me how unhappy he would be if I did not care for him. But when he saw me cry, he said that he was a brute and would not add to my present trouble. Then he broke off and asked if I could love him in time. And when I shook my head, his hands trembled. And then with some hesitation, he asked me if I cared already for anyone else. He put it very nicely, saying that he did not want to wring my confidence from me, but only to know, because if a woman's heart was free, a man might have hope. And then, Mina... I felt a sort of duty to tell him that there was someone. I only told him that much, and then he stood up. And he looked very strong and very grave, as he took both my hands in his and said he hoped I would be happy, and that if I ever wanted a friend, I must count him one of my best. Oh my dear, I can't help crying. And you must excuse this letter being all blotted, being proposed to is all very nice and all that sort of thing, but it isn't at all a happy thing when you have to see a poor fellow whom you know loves you honestly, going away and looking all broken-hearted, and to know that no matter what he may say at the moment, you are passing quite out of his life. My dear, I must stop here at present. I feel so miserable, though I am so happy. Evening. Arthur has just gone and I feel in better spirits than when I left off, so I can go on telling you about the day. Well, my dear, number two came after lunch. He is such a nice fellow, an American from Texas, 
and he looks so young and so fresh that it seems almost impossible that he has been to so many places and has had such adventures. I sympathize with poor Desdemona when she had such a dangerous stream poured in her ear, even by another man. I suppose that we women are such cowards that we think a man will save us from fears, and we marry him. I know now what I would do if I were a man, and wanted to make a girl love me. No, I don't, for there was Mr. Morris telling us his stories, and Arthur never told any, and yet, my dear, I am somewhat previous. Mr. Quincy P. Morris found me alone. It seemed that a man always does find a girl alone. No, he doesn't, for Arthur tried twice to make a chance, and I helped him all I could. I am not ashamed to say it now. I must tell you beforehand that Mr. Morris doesn't always speak slang. That is to say, he never does so to strangers, or before them. For he is really well educated, and has exquisite manners. But he found out that it amused me to hear him talk American slang, and whenever I was present, and there was no one to be shocked, he said such funny things. I am afraid, my dear, he has to invent it all for it fits exactly into whatever else he has to say. But this is a way slang has. I do not know myself if I shall ever speak slang. I do not know if Arthur likes it, as if I have never heard him use any as yet. Well, Mr. Morris sat down beside me and looked as happy and jolly as he could, but I could see all the same that he was very nervous and took my hand in his and said ever so sweetly, I know I ain't good enough to regulate the fixing of your little shoes, but I guess if you wait till you find a man, that is, you will, go on, join them, seven young women in the lamps when you quit. Won't you just hitch up alongside me and let us go down the long road together, driving in double harness? Well, he did look so good-humoured and so jolly that it didn't seem half so hard to refuse him as it did poor Dr. Seward. So I said, as lightly as I could, that I did not know anything of hitching, and that I wasn't broken to harness at all, yet. Then he said that he had spoken in a light manner, and he hoped that if he had made a mistake in doing so on so grave, so momentous, so occasion for him, I would forgive him. He really did look serious when he was saying it, and I couldn't help feeling a bit serious too. I know, Mina. You will think me a horrid flirt, though I couldn't help feeling a sort of exultation that he was number two in one day. And then, my dear, before I could say a word, he began pouring out a perfect torrent of love-making, laying his very heart and soul at my feet. He looked so earnest over it that I shall never again think that a man must be playful always, and never earnest, because he is merry at times. I suppose he saw something in my face which checked him, for he suddenly stopped and said with a sort of manly fervor that I could have loved him, for I had been free. Lucy, you are an honest-hearted girl, I know. I should not be here speaking to you as if I am now, as if I did not believe you clean grit right through to the very depth of your soul. Tell me, like one good fellow to another, is there anyone else that you care for? And if there is, I'll... Never trouble you a hair's breadth again, but will be, if you will, let me, a very faithful friend. My dear Mina, why are men so noble? 
when we women are so little worthy of them. Here was I almost making fun of this great-hearted, true gentleman. I burst into tears. I'm afraid, my dear, you will think this is a very sloppy letter in more ways than one, and I really felt very badly. Why can't they let a girl marry three men, or as many as want her, and save all this trouble? But this is heresy, and I must not say it. I am glad to say that, though I was crying, I was able to look into Mr. Morris's brave eyes, and I told him out straight. Yes, there is someone I love, though he has not told me yet that he even loves me. I was right to speak to him so frankly, for quite a light came into his face, and he put out both his hands and took mine, I think I put them into his, and said in a hearty way, That's my brave girl. It's better worth being late for a chance of winning you than being in time for any other girl in the world. Don't cry, my dear, if it is for me. I am a hard nut to crack, and I take it standing up. If that other fellow doesn't know his happiness well, he'd better look for it soon, or he'll have to deal with me. Little girl, your honesty and pluck have made me a friend, and that's rarer than a lover. It's more unselfish anyhow. My dear, I'm going to have a pretty lonely walk between this and Kingdom Come. Won't you give me one kiss? It'll be something to keep off the darkness now and then. You can, you know, if you like. For that other good fellow, he must be a good fellow, my dear, and a fine fellow, or you could not love him. Hasn't spoken yet? That quite won me over, Mina. And it was brave and sweet of him. And noble, too, to a rival, wasn't it? And he so sad, so I leant over and kissed him. He stood up with my two hands in his, and as he looked down into my face, I'm afraid I was blushing very much, he said, Little girl, I hold your hand and you've kissed mine, and if these things don't make us friends, nothing ever will. Thank you for your sweet honesty to me. And goodbye. He wrung my hand and, taking up his hat, went straight out of the room without looking back, without a tear or a quiver or a pause, and I am crying like a baby. Oh, why must men like that be made unhappy when there are lots of girls about who would worship the very ground he trod on? I know I would if I were free, only I don't want to be free. My dear, this quite upset me and I feel I cannot write of happiness just at once. After telling you of it, and I don't wish to tell of the number three until it can be all happy. Ever your loving, Lucy. P.S. Oh, number three? I needn't tell you of number three, need I? Besides, it was all so confused. It seemed only a moment from his coming into the room till both his arms were around me. And he was kissing me. I am very, very happy. And I don't know what I have done to deserve it. I must only try in the future to show what I am not ungrateful to God for. For all his goodness to me in sending to me such a lover, such a husband, and such a friend. Goodbye. Dr. Seward's Diary Kept in Phonograph 25th of May Ebb tide in appetite today. Cannot eat, cannot rest, so diary instead. 
Since my rebuffs of yesterday, I have a sort of empty feeling. Nothing in the world seemed of sufficient importance to be worth the doing. As I knew that the only cure for this sort of thing was work, I went down amongst the patients. I picked out one who has afforded me a study of much interest. He is so quaint that I am determined to understand him as well as I can. Today I seem to get nearer than ever before to the heart of his mystery. I questioned him more fully than I had ever done, with a view to making myself master of the facts of his hallucination. With the view to making myself master of the facts of his hallucination, in my manner of doing it there was, I now see, something of cruelty. I seemed to wish to keep him to the point of his madness, a thing which I avoid with the patient as I would the mouth of hell. Memo. Under what circumstances would I not avoid the pit of hell? Omnia Romne Venalia Sunt. Hell has its price. Verb Sap. If there be anything behind this instinct, it will be valuable to trace it afterwards and accurately, so I had better commence to do so. Therefore, R. M. Renfield, Ayatat 59. Sanguine temperament, great physical strength, morbidly excitable, periods of gloom ending in some fixed idea which I cannot make out. I presume that the sanguine temperament itself and the disturbing influence end in a mentally accomplished finish, a possibly dangerous man. Probably dangerous if unselfish. In selfish men, caution is as secure an armor for their foes as for themselves. What I think of on this point is, when self is the fixed point, the centripetal force is balanced with the centrifugal. When duty, a cause, etc., is the fixed point, the latter force is paramount, and only accident or a series of accidents can balance it. Letter Quincy P. Morris to Hon. Arthur Holmwood, 25th of May. My dear aunt, we have told Yarn for the campfire in the prairies and dressed one another's wounds after trying a landing in the Masqueries, and drunk healths on the shore of Titicaca. There are more yarns to be told and other wounds to be healed, and another hell to be drunk. Won't you let this be at my campfire tomorrow night? I have no hesitation in asking you, as I know a certain lady is engaged to a certain dinner party and that you are free. There will be only one other. Our old pal at the Korea, Jack Seward, he is coming too. And we both want to mingle our weeps over the wine cup and to drink a health with all our hearts to the happiest man in all the wide world, who has won the noblest heart that God has made and the best worth winning. We promise you a hearty welcome and a loving greeting and a health as true as your own right hand. We shall both swear to leave you at home if you drink too deep to a certain pair of eyes. Come! Yours as ever and always, Quincy P. Morris. Telegram from Arthur Holmwood to Quincy P. Morris, 26th of May. I bear messages which will make both your ears tingle, aunt. And this concludes chapter 5. So now Bram Stoker is stepping away from Jonathan Harker. His demise seems more or less secured, unfortunately. And now we get to see what Mina is up to, and that the world has continued on in his absence. 
But how long will this be the case for Mina? And will Mina pick up on the cryptic password or key that Jonathan has added to his messages? Perhaps, just maybe, Mina will see there's a pattern, but might not know exactly what that is, enlisting her friends like Lucy and Dr. Seward, for example, to help her come up with what Jonathan is trying to communicate. I wonder what'll happen next, mates. Can't wait for you to join me then. Now listeners, time for my Patreon mini-stories, but I'm shaking it up a bit. Today they're going to be mini-poems. My way of saying thank you to those that listen and support the podcast directly. These legends send dollar dues my way to improve the show, and I am so grateful. So as mentioned, I'm going to be reading poems with author notes included. Thoughts that I think Jonathan Harker's soul and spirit would have been wrapped up in during his time with Dracula. This is something different from my usual stories for you lovelies, but it is in the same vein as what we covered in today's episode. Letters from one another. I just stretched a bit and decided to do poems. First up are my Ode Night Tea Titans. These poems are taken from the complete works of Robert Burns, containing his songs, poems, and correspondence, all the way back in 1855. Let's dig in. Maya, Winter, The Dirge, Author Notes To walk by a river while flooded, or through a wood on a rough winter day, and hear the storm howling amongst the leafless trees, exalted the poet's thoughts. In such a season, he said, just after a train of misfortunes. The wintry west extends his blast, or the stormy north sends driving forth the blinding sleet and snore. While tumbling brown, the burn comes down and roars fray bank to bray, and bird and beast in covert rest and pass the heartless day. The sweeping blast, the sky o'ercast, the joyless winter day, let others fear to me more dear than all the pride of May. The tempest's howl, it soothes my soul, my griefs it seem to join. The leafless trees my fancy pleads, their fate resembles mine. Though power supreme, whose mighty scheme these woes of mine fulfill, here firm I rest, they must be best, because they are thy will. Then all I want, O oh, do thou grant, this one request of mine, since to enjoy thou dost deny, assist me to resign. Solstra, under the pressure of violent anguish, author notes, there was a certain period of my life, says Burns, that my spirit was broke by repeated losses and disasters, which threatened and indeed affected the ruin of my fortune. My body too was attacked by the most dreadful distemper, a hypochondria or confirmed melancholy. In this wretched state, the recollection of what makes me yet shudder. I hung my harp on the willow trees, except in some lucid intervals in one which I composed the following poem. O thou great being, what thou art, surpass me to know. Yet sure I am that known to thee are all thy works below. Thy creature here before thee stands, all wretched and distressed. Yet sure those ills that wring my soul obey thy high behest. Sure, though, almighty canst no act from cruelty or wrath. O oh, free my weary eyes from tears, or close them fast in death. But if I must afflicted be to suit some wise design, then man my soul with firm resolves to bear and not repine. Mates, I hope you liked your poems. They are of course dark, but they are handpicked just for you too. 
And as I mentioned, I wanted to really bring that sense of hopelessness and dread that Jonathan Harker was feeling during his time at the Dracula Castle. And, of course, bring something different to the table for this episode. I hope you enjoyed your poems, mates, and thank you so much for your support. Now, my awesome White Tea Warlords, I Own Cows, Remorse, A Fragment. Notes from the author. I entirely agree, says Burns, with the author of The Theory of Moral Sentiments, that remorse is the most painful sentiment that can embitter the human bosom. An ordinary pitch of fortitude may bear up admirably well under those calamities, in the procurement of which we ourselves have had no hand, but when our follies or crimes have made us wretched, to bear all with manly firmness, penitential sense of our misconduct is a glorious effort of self-command. And the poem begins. Of all the numerous ills that hurt our peace, that press the soul or wring the mind with anguish, beyond comparison the worst are those that to our folly or our guilt we owe. In every other circumstance the mind has this to say, it was no deed of mine. But when to all the evil of misfortune the sting is added, blame thy foolish self, or worse so far, the pangs of keen remorse. The torturing, gnawing consciousness of guilt, of guilt perhaps where we involved others, the young, the innocent, who fondly loved us, nay more, that very love their cause of ruin. O burning hell, in all thy store of torments, there's not a keener lash. Lives there a man so firm who, while his heart feels all the bitter horrors of his crime, can reason down its agonizing throbs, and, after proper purpose of amendment, can firmly force his jarring thoughts to peace. O happy, happy, enviable man! O glorious magnanimity of soul! And Lee Bauer, to ruin. Author notes, I have been, says Burns, in his commonplace book, taking a peep through, as younger Finley says, the dark postern of time long elapsed, towards a rueful prospect, what a tissue of thoughtlessness, weakness, and folly. My life reminded me of a ruined temple. What strength, what proportion in some parts, what unsightly gaps, what prostrate ruins in others. The fragment to ruin seems to have its origin in moments such as these. All hail, inexorable lord, at whose destruction breathing word the mightiest empires fall. Like cruel, woe-delighted train, the ministers of grief and pain. A sullen welcome all. I see each aim dart, for one has cut my dearest tie. And quivers in my heart, then lowering and pouring, the storm no more I dread, though thickening and blackening round my devoted head. And though grim power by life abhorred, while life and pleasure can afford. Oh, hear a wretch's prayer, no more I shrink appalled afraid, I court, I beg thy friendly aid, to close this scene of care. When shall my soul in silent peace resign life's joyless day, my weary heart its throbbing cease, cold mouldering in the clay. No fear more, no tear more, to stain my lifeless face, enclasped and grasped within thy cold embrace. Mates, with these poems I wanted to invoke a sort of frigid coldness of the soul, how Haka must have felt alone in the castle, Desperate and depressed, being the only living thing alive in that terrible place. Mates, thank you both for being so brilliant and supporting the show at this level, and I can't wait to bring you some more tales next week. And of course, my awesome Old Grain Forces, Chad Warren, Joss Heather, Lorraine Crisanto, 
Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Tristan Cassidy, and Dolphin and Cow. Thank all of you for supporting this show, mates. And I can't wait till next week for more Dracula and more creepy tales. If you think you have the capacity to support this podcast, visit my Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash sfgt. And if you want to reach out to me, say hi, share a story, or ask a question, email me at storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com. Have a wonderful weekend, mates. And as always, till next we meet.